Welcome to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. In early March, the New York Times published a story that was part confessional and part an effort to redress omissions made by the Times over a period of well over a century. Two Times editors made an exhaustive search of their archives and found that throughout its history, the Times obituaries had been dominated by white men and men had been memorialized in the pages of the newspaper far more often than women. And so, they began the task of writing obituaries of some of those women who'd been neglected. Since the initial obituaries were published in March, the Times has continued to add women who are finally getting the obituaries they deserved at the time of their death. They called the project, appropriately, Overlooked. Today we're going to talk with Jessica Bennett about the project. Jessica is the newly appointed gender editor of the Times. She's been working on Overlooked with the paper's digital obituary editor, Amisha Padnani. And since no conversation on writing about the deceased is complete here in Georgia without including the fabled longtime Obit editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we asked Cape Howell to join us too. Jessica talked to us from the offices of the New York Times in Manhattan. Kay was in the two-way street studio with me. Hello, Jessica. Hi, Kay. Kay is the queen of of obituaries in the South. Actually, Bill, it's Joyen of the Death Beat. Kay served as obituary editor of the AJC from 1996 to 2009. And as a profile written about her a couple of years back pointed out, during her tenure, if you knew anyone in Atlanta who had died, Kay probably knew them too. Jessica Bennett of the New York Times, Kay Powell, uh, the doyen of the death beat, formerly of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it's great to have you both here Uh, to talk on Two-Way Street. Jessica, let me start with you. Talk to us a little bit about how this project began. I started my job as the first ever gender editor at the New York Times in November. And one of the criticisms I'd heard for a number of years about the Times and about their coverage of women was that the obituary pages were pretty lopsided. You know, most of our obituaries do focus on men or did focus on men. And so when I arrived, I met with Amisha, who is a digital editor on our obituary section. And she had been collecting names of women and people of color who never received obituaries in the New York Times. And she'd sort of had this spreadsheet where she was adding these names to it frequently. And I had long been interested in this idea of women who either didn't get their due until after they died or women who were never really recognized or men had taken credit or gotten credit for their work. And so we started looking up names. You know, some of this was just an exercise in randomly thinking of women who had done amazing things, searching them in our archives and seeing if they got an obituary or not. So people like Ida B. Wells, the suffragist and the journalist, who we knew had received front page billing when she was married. And yet when we looked her up in the archives, she never received an obituary. Now, 
some point through this process, we realized that until the late 1970s, women were in fact cataloged under their husbands' names. So we had to redo all of our research at some point. <laughs> but what we, but what we wanted to do was draw attention to the women who had really been overlooked, and and we launched the project of our Women's History Month. What a double blow! Not only did the Times overlook the obituaries of any number of very prominent uh, women, but then it turns out that there probably were some obituaries, but they were filed under their husband's names. That tells yes. us a lot yeah. in and of itself. Even from the 1800s, many times women weren't even named in their own obituary. They were written about in the context of their connection to the men in their lives. So at least you had the husband's name to go by. <laughs> right. Kay, you were at Bath Abbey and discovered a tombstone that in many ways sets up this entire conversation. Uh, Can I read it to you? Please do. One of the most valuable women that ever lived. This is in memory of C.M. Those are the initials, right, that were on the tombstone. One of the most valuable women that ever lived whose principal happiness consisted in a real and unbounded affection and tenderness for her husband and children. This monument is erected from the sorrow of their hearts and their love and respect for her without vanity or weakness of proclaiming her virtues or their own misfortune in so inestimable a loss. Left to others, therefore, celebrate the name, family, and condition of so amiable and rare a character. She's not even mentioned by name. No. Jessica, that does seem to be uh, the way in which women in many ways over the centuries have been sort of forgotten in, in memorializing them. Yeah, you know, some have been forgotten, some have been nameless. Others, it, there's a really funny letter that Amelia Earhart wrote to the New York Times. She didn't receive a formal obituary, but we were covering at the time her disappearance. But when she was still alive, she at one point wrote a letter asking the Times to please stop calling her Mrs. Putnam. (laughs) She wanted to go by Earhart, not by the name of her husband. You say in the the very first piece of Overlooked, obituary writing is more about life than death. The last word, a testament to a human contribution. Yet who gets remembered and how inherently involves judgment. To look back at the obituary archives can therefore be a stark lesson in how society valued various achievements and achievers. So here's what I want to ask you about that. I sort of can understand that in the 19th century, men who dominated the newspaper business may not have understood the value of a lot of the women who passed away who should have been written about. But you have examples of 20th century women it, it is astonishing to me that Sylvia Plath, Diane Arbus, and so many others who are much more contemporary figures in history were also overlooked. How did that? How could Sylvia Plath and Diane Arbus not have found their way into New York Times obituaries, Jessica? I know. It's pretty shocking. And I don't know the answer. I mean, the, the best thing I can come up with is that, you know, our institution, like most— have long been dominated by men, and we have blind spots. You know, nobody is sitting here saying that these men who edited the obituary section purposely kept women out. But I think part of this is 
you know, needing to go out of your way to find additional voices. And so when we were looking back, we actually pulled all of the data and we got these old reference books, many of them from the New York Public Library that actually listed every single name of a person we'd written an obit about back to 1851. And we had one of our data analysts create an algorithm to search this and he could search by pronouns, gender pronouns and by um Ms. and Mrs. and Mr. to try to determine, not with perfect accuracy, but with relatively good accuracy, what had changed over time. And between 1851 and today, between 15 and 20 percent of the obituaries written were about women. And over the past two years, those numbers hadn't actually shifted that much. So, you know, this is a problem we are still dealing with. And so part of this project was, yes, to, to write the long forgotten obituaries of these amazing women, but also to really make a commitment to correcting the problem. Kay, as editor of the obituary page of the AJC for so many years, did you deal with um, a, a problem? You had a lot of control over who uh, was written about and who wasn't. Uh, but but were there times when it was tr- uh, difficult to convince your editors that certain women belonged in the obits and others didn't? First of all, I had just unquestioning support from editor Ron Martin. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I took from Richard Pearson, the late obit editor of the Washington Post, a sign that I kept on my desk that said, God is my assignment editor. <laughs> I remember one of the first ones I wrote when I took over in 1996 was about Gertrude Blue Brown. And her son, right off the bat, made it clear to me that she was the one that grew their metal company from getting her husband to sell things out of the trunk of the car into a multi-million dollar corporation. No, I never had a problem. I'll tell you where I did have a problem is when people like Louise Allen, who was the widow of Ivan a former Allen's, mayor, yeah. yes, when she died, I tried fought to get her on the front page of the paper, and they wouldn't put her there. And the next morning, when they were checking stats about how many eyeballs had looked at what in the paper, her obit was in the top five out of the whole paper, and I just kind of gloated and said, I told you so. Listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. Well, you know, and that raises something that you referred to, uh, Jessica. You point out that Ida B. Wells was certainly getting coverage in the news pages of the New York Times. So it becomes even more uh, uh, troubling to understand why her obituary didn't end up in the New York Times, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, it's strange. I mean, you you could interpret that as, you know, when she was tying herself to a man, it was newsworthy. But when she passed away on her own independently, it, it wasn't. I, you know, there's all sorts of things you could read into this. Maybe it was simply an oversight. Um, one of the really funny things we realized when we first published the project, somebody had researched on the Internet and found that Charlotte Bronte, who did not receive an obituary, her husband had received an obituary. And in his obituary, the headline said, Charlotte Bronte's husband dies. So, in fact, it was referring to her in his obit, and yet she didn't receive one herself. I'm interested, you know, Kay just talked about uh, her first obituary being of a woman whose son said she ran the company. She's what made out of the company. Mm. You have a wonderful obituary. Uh, Emily Warren Roebling 
Tell us about who Emily Warren Roebling was. Emily Warren Roebling was the wife of the man who constructed the Brooklyn Bridge, the chief engineer. And she, in fact, was completely instrumental to this project existing. What happened was that her husband fell very ill during the construction. And this was an 11-year project in the late 1800s. And she essentially had to take over. He was bedridden. He had been an engineer. He had worked on all sorts of bridge projects. And the bends that at the time was sort of this mysterious disease. Nobody knew what exactly it was, but it was a type of compression sickness that completely incapacitated him. You know, the news reports at the time said that he was deaf and blind and mute and couldn't really walk. And so as the the legend had it, he, from his home in Brooklyn Heights, would sit by the window of his bedroom with binoculars and look out over the construction site where his wife, Emily Warren Roebling, in her petticoat, something that you didn't often see on construction sites in the 1890s, (laughs) would be completely managing the site, you know, delivering his engineering briefs, coordinating with all of the politicians. And this was such a political build. You know, there was all sorts of corruption. They tried to shut the site down. There were deaths. There were injuries. It was very dramatic. And she was essentially this kind of woman behind the man who didn't get any credit for what she was doing. And she was a really incredible, incredible figure. And, and, the Brooklyn Bridge itself would not exist were it not for her. One of the things that's uh, interesting about uh, Roebling is uh, the art that accompanies her obituary, her too late in coming obituary. She is dressed very much as a grand dame of the late 19th century. It's a painting. The caption says that she was a woman of strong character with an almost masculine intellect. But the portrait (laughs) is such a strong contrast to what you just described in terms of the work she did. Yeah. Some of the descriptions of her at the time were were very funny to dig up. And yeah, her being described as having an almost masculine like intellect, you know, essentially she was a smart woman at a time when people didn't expect women, women to be smart. And so thus she had a masculine intellect. That was what the biographer wrote at the time. Um, But she's really an incredible figure. And I, I now think of her when I walk over the Brooklyn Bridge. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, more about the New York Times obituary project overlooked with our guests Jessica Bennett and Kay Powell. Just joining us, my guests on Two Way Street are Jessica Bennett, the gender editor of the New York Times, and Kay Powell, the acclaimed former obituary editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're talking about a project the New York Times has undertaken to make amends for the fact that many women of achievement never received obituaries in the Times pages. It's called Overlooked. 
And while it began with one story this last March, under Jessica's direction, the Times is continuing to publish once a week long overdue obituaries of women who were never recognized at the time of their deaths. Kay Powell was the obituary editor of the AJC for 13 years, and during her tenure, she became known for democratizing the obituary section. She sought out people who were of little public note, but who she thought had lives that would be interesting for the public to know about. Kay, one of the things that was a hallmark of yours for your years uh, overseeing obituaries is that you took people who were not in the headlines. You focused often on digging out the stories of people who were not terribly well-known. And I'm wondering, as we talk, if there are some women who you, as you go back over your years, your obituaries did run in the paper. Give us an example or two of some of the women who meant the most to you when you were writing. Bill, this was... One of our goals when I took over obits at the AJC was to have a very democratic obits page. And Jessica, I got amused when I was reading, um, is it Allison Hargreaves that conquered Mount Everest solo? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Without oxygen, I believe. Without bottled oxygen. Well, I did, um, I can't remember, it was in the early days, Herta Park, who died at 78, Climbed Stone Mountain every day for 30 years. Now, Stone Mountain is, what, about 1,600 feet (laughs) compared to Mount Everest. (laughs) And, in fact, to um, celebrate her 60th birthday, she climbed it 24 times in one day. But the obits for these two women tell me one very important thing about obits. You write for... The community you're serving, everybody knows they're not eulogies, they're not biographies, but for the readership of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Herta Park's accomplishment was just as impressive as Allison's is for your uh, international readership. So, Mm -hmm. um, Bill, another thing we did was a lot of black women who had made important contributions not only to Metro Atlanta but to the state uh, we wrote about. And another one, I tell you, the stories I loved were those people who were in the background who did something that changed history in Georgia And nobody knows about them. And one of my first favorites was Mary Huey. She successfully sued Georgia to allow married women to teach. If you were married, you could not be a teacher. And when she married and couldn't teach anymore, she sued the state of Georgia. How many hundreds of thousands of women owe her a debt? Wow. That's pretty remarkable. You know, I said a minute ago, Jessica, that I think that we lose history when we don't remember women who uh, put a stamp on one aspect or another of life. And and it occurred to me that one of those is Nella Larson. I didn't know anything about Nella Larson until I read your story. But when Nella, when we start to read about Nella Larson, it suddenly opens us up to understanding how important 
some African-American women were in in broadening our frontiers and understanding uh, African-American life. Tell us about Nella Larson. Yeah, you know, I didn't know about Nella Larson before. And this, in fact, came from it was pitched by a young woman writer here who had studied her in college. So one of the things we really wanted to accomplish with this project was to kind of shock people with the big name women who did not receive obituaries, like the Sylvia Plath, like the Ida B. Wells, but also help people learn about some of these stories that we may not have known of. And and Nella Larson was one of those. You say, when Nella Larson died in 1964, she left little behind, a ground floor apartment, two published novels, some short stories, a few letters. So why, given that uh, lead to the obituary, uh, did she seem to be someone who belonged in your collection of women who were not remembered in obituaries? Impact, really. You know, she had a huge impact, and it may not have been known to the masses, mm-hmm. but I think it really can't be underestimated. And and in some of these cases, you know, the impacts were very real, but they really weren't celebrated largely and, and wi- widely in the culture. And so we wanted to escalate and elevate some of these underrepresented voices. Were there uh, uh, some women who stood out in your mind who you suddenly were surprised to suddenly learn about? Uh, were there some famous people who suddenly jumped out at you? What are some of the obituary, the, the non-obituaries of women that you came across that really startled you in some ways? So Ida B. Wells was a huge one for me. You know, I had known about her. I knew that she was a journalist, but I didn't really realize the huge impact that she had on the way that we do journalism today. And so I think for a lot of people in in our newsroom, in a journalistic institution, they were just stunned to learn more about her. And, you know, so many of these names are those that maybe you've briefly heard about or learned about in history class, but have never really delved deep into. And I live in Brooklyn, you know, like I should know the story of the Brooklyn Bridge. And yet I had no idea that there was this this woman behind it. But even learning, you know, I had never written an obituary before. And there is a real art to how it is written. And I have so much respect for obituary writers. And oftentimes the stories are really elevating these details, these colorful details about a person's life that we may not have known. And so even with people like Charlotte Bronte, who most of us know the general story she wrote Jane Eyre, it was bringing out these details that I didn't know in the past. Kay, um, that's always been your specialty. You really look for uh, things that would help us uh, see the colorful side of people's lives. Uh, Margaret Eby, E-B-Y, was one of yours. Um, The Georgia native has a syrupy drawl that turns 10 into tin, an easy smoky laugh, and a policy of never leaving the house without lipstick and earrings on. And you quote her as saying, do you remember what... The quote was that she had uh, uh, given before she died. If I'm going through the drive through window, the part of me that you can see looks like I've been a productive citizen. <laughs> I love that. I loved finding out things about a person that sometimes even the family didn't know. You could do that mm-hmm. by talking with friends. And there is an art to writing an obit, and I like the style that y'all are using um, But when you talk about going through the newsroom, 
I would like to be a fly on the wall for what the reaction was over the Yvonne Brill beef stroganoff lead <laughs> because NPR called me to come in on and she read me the lead, and I said, I can tell you, without even looking at it, a man wrote that lead. Jessica, what is that one? <laughs> so so this was, and Kay, correct me if I'm wrong, this was a rocket scientist who had passed away, a female rocket scientist. Early, early female rocket scientist. And in the first line of her, her obituary, it noted that she made a mean beef stroganoff. Mm. And the Internet was sent into fits about how could you start, you know, it sort of plays into every stereotype about women. She was a good cook, but she was also a rocket scientist. Shouldn't that actually be the lead of her obituary? And I remember following this online primarily, and and people were very upset, and it drew a lot of attention to, more broadly, not just the numbers of women and men that are written about, but the way that we describe them, the way that we talk about them. Kay, one of your most famous obituaries. You're talking about Juanita Powell's obit, my mother's obit. Yeah, my sisters made me write it. I have never wanted to write an obit or give a eulogy for somebody I'm very close to because I spend the rest of my life thinking I didn't do right by them. Right. But my bossy sisters made me write Mama's obit, and there's a line in it that just has taken on a life of its own. She, You say uh, after she was widowed, there were 13 toothbrushes in her bathroom all kept there by people who regularly enjoyed her company. (laughs) That's a wonderful line. Jessica, that's another example (laughs) of you never know what people are going to connect with. You can't manipulate an obit when you're writing it. You tell an honest story straight out, and readers make their own connection, and you never know what they're going to find to identify with in that story. Jessica, we should point out that uh, although your original uh, piece appeared uh, in uh, early March, the Times is continuing this project. You are inviting people to continue sending you names that will um, uh, have that you'll decide whether a, a writer should be assigned to do an obit on. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is an ongoing project for you now, yes? Yeah, you know, we launched it over Women's History Month with 15 women, but the idea is to really continue it indefinitely. And so it runs as a weekly column in our obituary section, and everything is added to the main package. Um, And so we asked that readers submit names for those that we might have missed or those that they thought we should look into. And within that first week, we we received 2,500 submissions. Mm -hmm. So there is no (laughs) lack of women and people of color for us to look into. And it's been really wonderful to see the reaction. Um, One of my favorites in the more recent uh, grouping is Ruth Wakefield. It's so funny which obituaries resonate. And Ruth Wakefield invented the chocolate chip cookie, though there's actually some controversy about whether she really invented it or whether she was just the first person to really market it. But it was, in fact, an accident because she was trying to make some other type of cookie and she couldn't get the chocolate chunks right. And so she ended up stabbing them with an ice pick. (laughs) 
which broke them into small pieces. And then they ended up in, in the cookies and, you know, the chocolate chip cookie was born. And so this was a very fun project, but our food department actually ended up baking some of these cookies using Ruth Wakefield's original recipe. And I did not get to try them. I'm, I'm very upset about that. But they looked delicious. And it was a fun way to actually test out the recipe of this woman who we had featured in the project. We'll take another break right now. More with The New York Times gender editor Jessica Bennett and former AJC obituaries editor Kay Powell when we come back. This is Two Way Street. Welcome back to Two Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. My guests today are New York Times gender editor Jessica Bennett and retired AJC obituaries editor Kay Powell. We've been talking about a project in which the New York Times is making amends for the fact that over a period of more than a century, they failed to write obituaries of prominent women. Now, they're writing many of those obits. But as we continue our conversation, we turn to a discussion of Jessica's new role as gender editor of the New York Times. I have another question for you, too, because I'm so excited about the position they've created for you and what you're doing. And I love your quote about when you finally get everybody thinking right, you hope they'll find another job for you to move on to. Yeah. <laughs> but how how influential are you throughout the newsroom beyond even other OBET writers and how they view uh, women they write about, how they write about them, so we don't have another Yvonne Brill rocket scientist beef stroganoff lead. What are you doing to influence how women as subjects of news articles are handled by the New York Times? Yeah, I mean, my position is twofold in the sense that on the one hand, it's about journalism. It's about creating new journalism, putting new journalism into the world. So whether that be about feminist issues or women in government or international issues where women are at the center or gender identity, the ways that masculinity is changing, you know, all of these subjects that to some extent we could do a better job covering. I oversee a lot of that coverage. But the other half of it is kind of looking internally and thinking about what we could do better in the stories that we produce on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I, I often say gender is not going to be its own section of the newspaper. We are not trying to recreate mm -hmm. what was known as the women's pages of the 1960s, where everything that was deemed for women was sort of cordoned off into its own section. Gender is really a lens through which we view everything that we do. And so sometimes that means thinking about things like photography. You know, does most of our photography show white men at the center and women in the background? Or sourcing, you know, to what extent are we quoting female experts versus male experts? Somebody internally created a tool to tally bylines. How many of the bylines on the front page are by women versus men? And 
you know, our hypothesis, my hypothesis, that is that all of this stuff matters. You know, we know that more men than women are engaged readers of The New York Times, and we want to correct that. And so it's a combination of thinking about these small things that we can do internally, things like not referring to beef stroganoff in the first sentence and of an obituary about a rocket scientist, but also just making sure that we are covering issues that represent the reality of, of the world today. I don't envy you for what you have ahead of you, and I'm so excited <laughs> for the direction you're taking. And you were connected with the Me Too coverage also, weren't you? Yeah, I came in. I started my job two weeks after our amazing investigative reporters, Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy, who just won the Pulitzer Prize, broke the Harvey Weinstein story. So as you can imagine, it was sort of a mad scramble. It was sort of the best possible time for a gender editor to come in, but also a, a crazy time. So I'm, I'm just now kind of emerging from that to think about, you know, what else? What's the next Me Too movement that we can cover? That's a mission that's going to take some work, isn't it, Jessica? Yeah, I mean, basically, I need like 50 of myself. <laughs> um, and and like I mentioned earlier, you know, people have, have often asked, like, why does the New York Times need a, a gender editor? Should the New York Times need a gender editor? And my, my response is typically, no, we shouldn't need a gender editor. And... I know I will have done my job well if there's no reason to have one anymore. But the reality is we're playing catch up, but like most institutions are, and there are things we could be doing better. It, I saw someone on Twitter saying Senator Tammy Duckworth, who took her one week old baby to the Senate floor, and it became headline. It became a headline everywhere. And, and we will know we have actually made progress when that no longer needs to be a headline. But... I think that, you know, we're seeing a real reaction to Me Too, to the election, with record numbers of women running for office. And and it's great that we have more women covering those races as journalists as well. It's been my treat to be able to chat with you. I love you what well. you're going to be carrying on up there. It's wonderful. <laughs> Bye, Thank Jessica. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Every Thursday, under Jessica Bennett's direction, the New York Times posts on its website new obituaries of women who were overlooked in the past. You can find them at nytimes.com overlooked. And if you have a name you'd like to submit to the Times, you'll find a link on that website. Having Kay Powell back in the studio reminded me of what a great guest she'd been when she did our show back in the summer of 2014. She talked extensively about her work as an obituary editor and told stories about some of the wonderful people who she wrote about. We thought it would be fun to go back and listen to some of that conversation again. Here it is. When I was obits editor at the AJC, we always said, we write about how they lived, not how they died. If you go back and read those obits we wrote, and I say we because I had a team of writers through the years, different ones, there might be one sentence about death. There might be another sentence about funeral. What's the first question people ask when somebody dies, and what's the second question? What did he die of? How old was he? So those two elements must be in 
a news obit article. It doesn't matter who you are. Now, we did have some women who kept their age such a secret even their children didn't know. One who was a prominent businesswoman here in town even lied on her passport. So you kind of make that part of the story explaining why you're not telling how old they are because even the children don't know enough to tell you. So an individual dies, uh, you decide that you need to write the obituary of that person's life. And so you have to begin developing sources, those who knew that person well enough to give you the kind of information that could give you the opportunity to write a rich obituary, an accurate obituary. Yes, accurate is the key word there. It's all a matter of building trust, and it starts a lot of times with the funeral homes that would give us the family contact information. How you approach that family when you get them on the phone, getting that conversation done, asking them for friends, it's always important to have an outside voice. And so I spent a long, long time giving my little spiel of who we write about and how we choose them and all like this to the funeral directors, to families that called in. Eventually, the readers caught on to what we were doing and loved it. And so a lot of times we would have them call and not necessarily tell us about a family member that they thought we should write about, but somebody in the neighborhood maybe that was unique that was very little known or just somebody interesting. So it was a complex system of building up trust. But that first phone call. Yes. The phone is answered at the home where people are grieving, and you say, I'm Kay Powell, I'm with the Atlantic Constitution, and that can be a tough moment to get people to talk, can't it? I used to teach an entire course on the psychology of words. <laughs> And how important it is. Usually it would be, I'm Kay Powell with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I am not selling you a subscription. (laughs) Mr. Smith at the funeral home gave me your number to contact you. I was so sorry to read about Mr. Nygert's death from the information in the funeral home, and I was captivated by the fact that he spent his life collecting uh, 45 RPM records. I want to talk to you about that to write an article in the paper. Is this a convenient time? And sometimes they would say, well, I can't talk right now. I'll talk to you next week. And you say, I I would love to talk to you next week, except this is a daily story. And I can understand completely if you don't want us to write the story because you don't have time. Oh, no, no, no. I'll, I'll make time. I have time. But you start out with that sort of Building trust, giving them confidence, letting them know straight up what you're calling for and what you're doing. And sometimes it takes a hard left turn. What you call up to start writing about in print winds up something entirely different because of your conversations with the family, with friends, your research and archives. You find a dimension to the person that you didn't know anything about. This was a job that meant more than just gathering basic facts. This was delving into and creating as complete and accurate a portrait as possible. One of my writers said, you know what case is, bring them back to life. And that was our job, was to capture sort of what was the essence of them. And again, you can't tell their entire life story. 
but you want to capture sort of what defined them, capture some of that personality. And the least little item about somebody could catch my attention. Uh, I, I saw that somebody was a Kmart greeter, and I said, well, we've never written on a Kmart greeter. Well, it turns out the man had been CEO of an international furniture company. In fact, they made the furniture that was used in the house in the television show Dallas. He retired. He got bored. He missed being around people. So he took a job as a Kmart greeter. How can you know that? I saw that somebody priced groceries in a grocery store. I said, well, everybody has to buy groceries. We've never done this. Let's write on him. Well, it turns out he collected prize winning show quality skunks <laughs> and he even had a motorcycle with his best prize winning skunk airbrushed onto it I, I figured if i was curious about them the reader would be too you wrote an, an, an obituary that really tells a pretty powerful story about a collection of people you would not expect to see together I loved it when we could reveal in our obits information that were little known or unknown, particularly about Georgia and Atlanta history. And when Jim Sanders, the wine merchant, died, I interviewed Doc Lawrence, who's in the wine community here, for his obit. And uh, Jim Sanders at his wine shop, had in the back what he called the soup kitchen. Every day he'd cook up a meal, pair it with the European wine, and those in the know knew they could go to the back room and eat and drink and talk. Well, one day in that room were former Governor Marvin Griffin, who was a segregationist, Ralph McGill, liberal editor and pro-civil rights advocate of the Atlanta Constitution, and the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who was in the shop buying champagne for his and Coretta's anniversary. The three of them wound up in Jim Sanders' soup kitchen, eating and drinking and telling stories and laughing and carrying on all day long. Jim had to run them out of the store to lock up for the night. And when he looked out the plate glass window on the sidewalk, those three men were still telling stories and laughing and slapping each other on the back. And you learned all this as you researched the obituary of Jim Saunders. Yes. When I interviewed Doc Lawrence, he told me this and he said, Kay, I've never told this story to anybody. You didn't write obituaries about people only. You wrote an obituary for the planet Pluto. Yes, I did. It were in on the front page with a huge graphic, but I wrote the obit for Pluto the Planet in our AJC obit style. And this was the lead. Pluto, the least of the major celestial bodies, never asked to be a planet. Once elevated, it became an influential figure in astronomy and astrology, in classical music, and in cartoons. And then in our obits, we always had a cause of death and funeral plans. So for Pluto, I said, no memorial service is planned because it has been several years since astronomers considered Pluto a real planet. And then at the end, we always listed survivors. So for Pluto, I said, survivors include eight planets, 
Earth, Jupiter, Mars, Mercury, Neptune, Saturn, Uranus, and Venus. <laughs> I'd like to read one back to you. Okay. Uh, and this is in keeping with uh, the philosophy that Ron Martin uh, suggested, which was that you write about ordinary people. And this one was very touching to me. Mike Huddleston, 44, Noonan. Every eight-hour shift, he worked at Delta Airlines. Mike Huddleston was responsible for getting 5,000 pieces of luggage to the correct spot at Hartsfield International Airport. His record was so outstanding that Mr. Huddleston was featured in a Discovery Channel special, The Secret Life of Luggage. I saw that he was a baggage handler. I called the family. I got the usual things. I got information from them about his supervisor at Delta. And that's when, at the last minute, I got the details about his being featured in that Discovery Channel. On the job, he lost four fingers. Two were reattached, and two never were able to be reattached. But he kept a positive attitude working. Bruce Williams of Coweta County, you uh, uh, wrote an obituary of uh, Mr. Williams, and you learned something from Griffin Bell that you used in the obituary that was pretty interesting. What had Bruce Williams done? Bruce Williams made a sausage that Griffin Bell called rooster pepper sausage, and it was famous and popular and well-known. And when Jimmy Carter was in the White House as president, and Griffin Bell was his attorney general. Griffin Bell felt like they needed rooster pepper sausage. And Griffin Bell, the attorney general of the United States of America, would smuggle rooster pepper sausage into the White House, past all the guards, past all the checkpoints, and he had half of Capitol Hill hooked on rooster pepper sausage. I want to share with you, uh, uh, again, something you wrote. <laughs> you you talk about how details enrich an obituary. Mm-hmm. And one sentence that you cite is, uh, she was so little, her shorts met her socks. <laughs> that gave me an image immediately. I can still see that little girl in my mind. But then you talk about clothing in a way that really gives us a very strong image of the kind of person uh, you were writing about. Dale Sheriff, a construction worker. His Levi's always had a crease down the center of the leg, and he polished his work boots. We know a little about him, don't we? You get a picture of him, I hope. I hope. You get to know people, um, ironically enough, after they're gone in that job. There's got to be some slightly dissonant feeling about that, I would think. It's a personality profile, but there did. In fact, I'd go to, to my editor and I'd say, Laura, I, I've got to have more space. I have gone and fallen in love with this man. And she said, okay, you fall in love with all of them. You've got to start <laughs> falling in love with them when they're alive. You uh, chose to write an obituary of a grand uh, wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Grand Dragon. Grand yes, Dragon. Calvin Craig. That was a challenge in talking to his family. I called them, and they were resistant. And I explained to them, because he was such a public figure, an article would be written one way or the other. And I thought it was important to have the family 
talk about him and get their voice in the article and get their perspective in the article. And I talked to the wife, and I talked to the son, and I talked to the wife, and I talked to the son, and I talked myself blue in the face, <laughs> explaining. I, he, he, the son finally told me, he said, I, I just want it to be fair. And I said, I couldn't write it any other way. I understand completely if it was my daddy, I'd want a fair article too. The wife even called Ron Martin, the editor, trying to stop the story. And he came down to the newsroom and said, I've gotten a call from I said, Ron, he was a public figure. There's no way in the dime we need to cover it. There needs to be a story. He backed me 100%. And when I got off the phone with the family talking to the son the last time, I got a standing ovation from the newsroom <laughs> for the way I'd handled it. But it was a fair story. I talked about his work in the Ku Klux Klan. I talked about Zernona Clayton getting him to leave the Klan. They were served together in one. Zernona the, Clayton being one of the one of the really great figures uh, in civil rights. Early, here. highly active civil rights activist and lead, not to be redundant, leader in the community. Fair, nobody is one hundred percent truly evil. And as you talk to people, you can find a spot in there. Like Zernona Clayton was helpful in pointing out some positive aspects of Calvin Craig. What are some of the other obituaries that meant the most to you in your career? All of them. <laughs> don't you hate that answer? Don't you hate it? I, I approached obits, or all my writing really is, I have to get my lead done first. And I do have a couple of my leads here that I like, and uh, you can kind of see if you. Um, <clears throat> one that I like, it, it's um, a short lead to me is always a better lead. And the lead on George Hopkins obit said, George Hopkins died again Friday. That was the entire lead. In World War II, he tested diving equipment, you know, the old big heavy canvas suits with the huge metal hood. And drowned and died while testing one. And they got him to the surface and they resuscitated him. And he went on to become a lawyer here in Atlanta. He died at 83. Thelma Hogan at Tucker was the hostess at Matthew's restaurant there. And this was the lead on her obit. Now, I'll tell you about the picture I got to go with it afterwards. At Matthew's cafeteria, a smiling Thelma Hogan called you by your first name, Asked after your mama, made sure your cornbread was cooked just like you'd like it, and hugged your child in her lap while she rang up your lunch on the cash register. She did that about 800 times a day for 43 years. That's an excerpt from the conversation we had with longtime Atlanta Journal-Constitution obituary editor Kay Powell back in August of 2014. That's all the time we have for this week's Two-Way Street. Our senior producer is Jenny Amund. Jenny edited today's show. Our producer is Olivia Rheingold, and our engineer is Tyler Morris. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you again next time for another Two-Way Street.